Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Hamar Biday, Lawrence D. Globinger, Professor of Business at Columbia University and author of The Venturesome Economy. Hamar, welcome to Econ Talk. Pleasure to be here. Now, many people are worried about the rise of China and India and the potential impact on American prosperity. Uh, they're worried about our losing our technological edge, uh, that we don't have enough engineers, uh, that there's a race that we are risking falling behind in. And your book and your general view is very different from that mainstream view, and your reasons for your view are also very different. So I'd like you to to talk about that, and that's going to be our, our major subject. Okay. Why why aren't you worried about uh, the so-called uh, gains and rise of China and India? Well, I mean, the, the initial worry about, about China and India was we're going to lose our low end. We're going to uh, lose low-end jobs. And that turned out not to have awful consequences. Then people said, oh, my God, they're going to get into high-end research and high-end technology and design, and that's really going to nail us because our comparative advantage, are, uh, usually, in fact, people use the word competitive advantage, I think, misleadingly rather than comparative advantage. Our competitive advantage is in producing uh, high-end knowledge and design, and, and, and uh, we can give up on, on manufacturing as long as we keep that. Uh, and this is uh, this is wrong on, on a variety of levels. One is, as Krugman, who I usually don't agree with, uh, pointed out, we really uh, nations really aren't in a competitive race. I mean, businesses may compete, individuals may compete, nations. In theory, might compete. You could construct an economic model which had them competing. And, uh, but as a matter of fact, they don't compete. So we, we aren't. Th- this is in the Olympics where if China starts winning more gold medals, we'll win less. And uh, th- th- this is the uh, the production, especially of of, uh, of high end knowledge, be it in science or, or or in technology, is really the production of public goods. And these public goods are available at either no cost or low cost, or virtually uh, zero cost, uh, to anyone. And the, 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 so, so, so what we're seeing is, is an increase in, in, the world supply, in the world supply of valuable public goods. And the, the largest benefit, ironically enough, uh, is going to be uh, is most likely to be realized in uh, uh, in the United States and in other advanced economies, where the other levels of knowledge, both technical and non-technical, are most uh, are, are most likely to be produced uh, and available to take advantage of of, of these high-end advances. So, for example, when people say. Uh, it's important that Google was invented in California. What's your response? Well, I mean, uh, Google may have been invented in, in California. The World Wide Web was not. The World Wide Web was invented by a Brit in uh, in Switzerland. And yet, I would I would suspect that uh, the United States derived more advantage from uh, from the World Wide Web than I did uh, than did either Switzerland or. Uh, uh, or, or, or Britain, and, and, sure. and, and the reason is that we have the capacity to take these high-end inventions, these building blocks, or these, or these scientific breakthroughs, and turn them into usable products and services that improve uh, uh, productivity and the consumer surplus for our citizens, possibly to a greater degree than the, the, the countries in which. Uh, uh, in, 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 in which these technologies originated. Or ju- just to stick to the Google example, Google has just introduced a uh, uh, a new browser, the Chrome, 
it turns out that it was that the, the team and 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 the, and the lead engineer for the Chrome are sitting in Denmark. Does it make a width? I mean, a, a width difference? Absolutely not. I mean, if the if that browser takes off and it and it, and we build it, we we see a lot of value, valuable applications built off it. The greatest value will be derived in those countries where for whom these these Chrome-based applications are best optimized. Yeah, I think some people have some sort of psychological um, scorecard where they're saying, "Ah, Google, that's us. Or yes. Chrome, that's somebody else's baby." But but uh, you know, we we invented the airplane, and we invented we being America, as if we invented it. Of course, we didn't. Uh, there is no we. Right. But the idea somehow that our team is ahead because we invented these things. But as you point out. Uh, it doesn't matter where the things come from, although some of the gain, of course, accrues directly to the innovator, but a surprisingly small part, and the rest of it accrues to the consumers. Um, Absolutely. Now, so let me give you a, a good example. I mean, let me go back to the Olympics example. Certainly, if the United States wins more medals in the Olympics than... Uh, than all other countries, in, or, you know, is, is the number one winner of gold medals in, in, in the Olympics. That would give us all a psychological lift. Uh, Maybe. Uh, you know, <laughs> Maybe. A lot of people, I think, don't care. But, yeah, it might make yeah, you but, feel I mean, good. All, all things being equal, we would be happier if we won more, more gold medals than anybody else. But the issue is, is this a matter of public policy? Is this something that public policy should be concerned about? And does it, apart from the psychological lift, have any benefit to... To, to the citizens who don't care about how many gold medals we win, and and the answer is, is is not really, and should we in particular be investing our resources into winning more gold medals? No, I mean if if, if there are philanthropists who think that it's it's a good thing that America wins more gold medals, the most gold medals in the world, and they are willing to devote their private wealth to winning these medals, excellent. If there are philanthropists likewise who think that we should be the number one country in in, in Nobel prizes in physics, and they you know, they endow, they, they give a lot of money to to universities in in the U.S. so that our scientists win. But that that that's a, that's a matter of pride. That you know, and nothing wrong with pride. But where where it becomes problematic is when it becomes an object of public policy. Well, because usually people who advocate these kind of things often forget about the cost. Yeah. So you have a company, you have a country like Cuba that wins a disproportionate share of medals historically relative to its population, You're and right. that's lovely for the athletes. It's nice for for Castro, mm-hmm. so he can stand on the winner's stand or shake their hands or look good. But of course, it helps. The money comes from the average citizen who's getting who's very very poor and hungry. Yeah. And and it's not just the money; it's the attention as well. Yeah, that's true I too. Mean, Sort of, the, I, I think again, what most people forget is that, like companies, uh, the administrative capacity of government is limited. It's, and, and I mean, besides its purse, its its it, its capacity to focus on and solve problems. Given all the all the good checks and balances that we have, there there, there are only so many changes that we can effectively make and implement on the public policy side. And that's a resource that should that's a precious resource. Now let's get back to the book. I, I think what is I think important and fascinating about the book is the insight that this fundamental R and D, this you know, the things that are often you read in the in the media that we're allegedly falling behind in R and D, the number of patents per capita, engineering degrees per capita, et cetera, et cetera. That these sort of what you would call fundamental research, uh, which you're which you correctly point out. Or public goods in the sense, the technical sense of economics, meaning that lots of people can enjoy them at very low cost. They research findings spread around the world very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, what you point out in the book, which is is so interesting, is that these then become these insights, this knowledge, then then becomes uh, essentially an input into two other levels of innovation. Uh, that is much more localized, and it's, and they are complementary. So, talk about the other the three levels altogether. And so, I think that actually, important. I mean, I, I, I use three levels simply uh, for purposes of simplification. That there are multiple levels, sure. but we can array these levels of knowledge, starting with on on the one end, perfectly codifiable, uh, easily transmitted 
general rules and principles. And sort of going back in history, you could think of the invention of the zero as be, as being one of them, or Archimedes' principle being another, or the, or the principles of flight being being yet another. But these principles or these these general ideas uh, don't lead to any economic prosperity or advances. To, to translate these to, 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 to translate these ideas in, in, into into economically useful artifacts, you need more more sort of grounded, time and place specific know-how as well. So Archimedes' principle is fine, but it's not it's not sufficient to build a boat. To build a boat, we need sort of knowledge of uh, of, of shipbuilding, which involves a whole a whole bunch of other less scientific but more heuristic knowledge. And then we actually need the knowledge of 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 of, uh, of, of running a specific shipyard, and this kind of knowledge is is hard to transmit from place to place, and therefore necessarily has to be developed and refined locally. Uh, and so, in a world where the highest level of knowledge is increasing. The, the scarcity then moves downwards into these into into this lower level of knowledge, and as I also point out in the book, it's not just technical knowledge that that's necessary. There's a there's a lot of managerial and organizational knowledge, knowledge which is important as well. So the railroad which transferred transformed America was not simply a technological innovation. There was a great deal of of organizational learning and innovation that that, that had to occur for you know. For trains not to run into each other, and this knowledge had to be developed by railroad operators in the United States, optimized for for local practices and and local conditions. And this was not necessarily technical knowledge; it was it was organizational knowledge. And this is true of virtually any any innovation that you can think of. In in medicine, for instance, the great breakthrough about ulcer treatment was in the in the uh, 1980s, when an Australian doctor figured out that it was uh, it, 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 it it was a bacterium that caused ulcers, and his his, his sort of high-level breakthrough was you needed antibiotics to, to treat these ulcers. But that 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 breakthrough, crucial as it was, was by in and of itself not sufficient to, to actually treat ulcers. You had to take that knowledge and translate it into specific protocols. Uh, you know what dosage of antibiotics delivered in what way, conditional upon what kinds of, of, of symptoms, and then we had to change practices in in hospitals and doctors to to make sure that these protocols were implemented. So the, the, the many many layers of knowledge, progressively less abstract and more concrete and 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 more tacit, which have to be de- developed and. Necessarily, these these levels of knowledge have to be developed locally, rather than the, the, this stuff cannot be gotten from abroad. And if I understand your point in the book correctly, the development of say or the transfer of research and development centers, whether they are in computers or medicine or whatever, to say China and India, because it can be done more cheaply there, is going to enhance U.S. prosperity if they're good at it. Yes. Because a lot we are a very large market. And you make an interesting point about the role that users play, end users of technology and innovation mm-hmm. and services play, and therefore the the natural result is that much of this R&D will be focused on developing products for this large market that has this wonderful user feedback and, and market forces that help make it uh, productive. Absolutely. So... So, um, uh, sort of a, a striking example of this is the personal computer. There is a there's an there's a very eloquent article by Paul Roma from Stanford, where he says the prices of uh, of transistors have collapsed from 1985 and by by, by an enormous order of magnitude. Uh, and he says I as a consumer have derived the benefit from it, yet I have contributed nothing. Or to deserve or pay for this windfall, I think the first half of, of his statement is right that he has done nothing to that he is the he and other consumers of 
direct and indirect consumers of transistors, mainly through artifacts such as personal computers, have derived the greatest benefit from the reduction in, in, in the prices of transistors. But we've done a great deal to deserve and pay for this windfall. I mean, all of us, when we buy a, 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 a new computer, are taking a risk. Uh, because we, not, we don't really know how much economic value that computer is actually going to add. It, it's a leap in the dark. We, we, we just uh, we, we have some animal spirit, some confidence that this new gizmo is going to make our lives better, and we just convince ourselves that it's going to be worth the $2,000 uh, that we're going to have to pay for it. I, I incidentally bought my first personal computer in 1982. I paid $10,000, and uh, it was about a fourth of my salary at the time. Uh, that was a big leap in the dark. That was a big <laughs> leap in the dark. I was, I was also, con- I mean, I, it was also a time when I was not sure I was going to have my job. Yeah. Because we were in in the midst of a, of a recession. recession. But I said, what the heck? You know, this is, it, it's exciting. It's fun, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll learn something from it. And if you add up the, these kinds of leaps in the dark that American purchases of, of consumers have taken over and over and over again. And add up the uh, add up the money that we've spent without really knowing what it's going to bring us. Uh, they swamp, I think, the financial risk taken by the people who produce computers, either hardware or software. That's a fascinating point because when you talk about the uncertainty and the leap in the dark, I think one's first thought is that the thing might not work. But of course, mm-hmm. it often works. But you find it's not so useful or not so interesting. We all have gadgets that we paid small and large amounts for that sit on the shelf. And we have others that are really are, per, you know, perpetually enjoyable and exciting that 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 we they're th- we're still thrilled by. Right. But uh, you're right; a lot of them don't uh, don't turn out as well as we hoped. And I mean, the the, the 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 other interesting part of it is, even if things work out well, we never really know whether it was worth the price or not, because the the, the idea that we we actually have a precise measure in our heads of what. Utility something provides us in the same way as we have a. You know, people send us. We know exactly how much we pay for a computer. We have much less knowledge of how much what what invest the 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 monetary value of the investments we make to make that computer work. And we have virtually no knowledge of 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 of, of the economic benefit that we get from it. Or the non-economic benefit. Or the non-economic yeah. benefit. Just the, and, the pleasure. And, and Right, exactly. So it, 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 it's all a certain amount of venturesomeness. Uh-huh. And this is not just true of, of, of... And this is not, as I point out, this is not merely the leading-edge users. It's not just the first purchaser of a computer who takes this kind of risk. The, the millionth purchaser of a computer takes exactly the same kind of risk. Yeah, that's so the... I, I haven't yet bought a flat-panel TV. And I, We're the know, last two. I mean, maybe, yeah, right, exactly. And, you know, maybe I'll go around and get one, but I won't know whether it's, you know, whether paying the 500, I don't know what they cost now, is or is not worth the uh, uh, the junking of, of the TV that I have now. It's sort of an, an, in, an, an innate, almost emotional uh, reflex, and then it's not just risk taking. We also we also um, we also engage in a great deal of resourceful problem solving, and the resourceful problem solving comes about in the first place because many of these gadgets are so complex that you simply cannot write out a complete manual manual to figure out how it will work. So there the, 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 the are lots of blanks and, and, and unanticipated things that. Uh, you, you have to sort out for yourself. I mean, sometimes you, you, you go to Google and figure out, and, and you go to Usenet groups and, and then try to find someone who's had uh, a, a similar problem. Uh, and this is not mechanical labor like digging ditches. And even if, even if the thing is problem-free, we typically adapt these, these gadgets for our personal use. So you know, when I use a spreadsheet, I use, I try to tailor that spreadsheet for whatever. Uh, uh, I don't know how technical, techni- whatever model I, I, I want to use it for, and that is really ground level knowledge. It's my know-how. It's know-how that nobody else has produced in the world, and which may not my know-how may be of no value to anybody else. So I have to do it myself. 
And so if you if if you if you take into account this kind of resourceful problem solving uh, and add it all up from from the consumer side again, I think it would swamp the the resourceful problem solving. Uh, contributed by the people who produce computer hardware and software. But, but you also point out that, that there's feedback involved. So I'm thinking, for example, of a new product comes out like the Amazon Kindle, which is an electronic book reader, digital right. book reader. And I, the last time I looked uh, at Amazon, it's the only place you can buy it, I think there were over 7,000 reviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them, I'm sure, are complaints, things they wish were different, better, right. features it doesn't have. They have an online forum for that. There's websites about it. So users, uh, through their experimentation and, and feedback, uh, tell the producer what's how to make the product better. Absolutely. And they are, they are, in some sense, part of the extended engineering and design team. And, and the point is that, 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 that a nation that has these venturesome uh, consumers who are willing to take a chance, who are willing to put in the effort, who have the imagination to figure out how to improve a Kindle, figure out features of a Kindle that might not have occurred to Amazon, which produced the Kindle. That nation is going to get products and services optimized for their consumers' needs and will will therefore benefit to a greater degree than whichever nation it might have been that it that, that that invented the base technology that started this off in the first place. Now, a lot of your insights come from an extensive study you did of actual uh, startups and enter- enterprises that were backed by venture capital. Mm-hmm. And you started off with the question, if I remember correctly, of how global these companies are, because we have in the back of our mind that the world's become more global. Markets flat, perfectly flat. That's all flat. So right. so so when you start a new company, you've got to be aware that you could sell the product in in Europe while manufacturing it in Asia and sitting at home, say, in America. Right. But tell us what you found in that study and with respect to globalization. So uh, I, this is a follow-on study that to a study that I'd done in the late 1980s where I was just focused on entrepreneurs. And I was, I was focused on high-growth entrepreneurs on the Inc. 500 list. And I had observed then, sort of at the you know, I, I didn't write it up because it was not a hot topic then. That most of these businesses were very local, not even national. They, they, you know, they served more or less local or regional markets. They drew their, they drew their employees from sort of within a one-mile radius. They didn't raise capital from far away. Uh, and then after this uh, globalization became all the rage, uh, I wanted to see whether my observations most entrepreneurs tend to be focused on local markets still held. And I, I, I then said, well, it's highly unlikely that the, the classic U.S. entrepreneur who is based, uh, I mean, who's, who more often than not is in the service sector uh, and, and more often than not is not technologically orientated. Um, so I, I thought if, if anybody in, in the entrepreneurial universe is going to be deeply engaged in the world, it's got to be these venture capital-backed, uh, well-capitalized, technology-based companies. And I was surprised to find that there was far less global interaction than met the eye, uh, that there were a few who were poster children of globalization. I mean, people whose stories could have could be slotted into Friedman's The, the, the World is Flat, but very few. And most of them were like the like the entrepreneurs that studied in, in the late 1980s, focused on developing local markets, were, were, were drawing their employees from from, uh, from the local workforce, were not raising money abroad, were, and that that's what then got me thinking. Well, why is this so, and what does this tell us about the 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 nature of global global interactions and the degree to which this more interconnected world has really become flat and what we should be worried about and what we shouldn't be worried about. Because in that flat world, you know, supposedly all of a sudden we, you know, we used to be insulated from in these knowledge jobs from say Chinese or Indian or other types of competition. But now because the world is flat, everybody's living standard is going to be equalized through this competitive force. That's the claim. Right. That's that's the pessimistic claim. The optimistic claim 
is that because China and India are growing, they will provide fantastic markets for our, for our technologies. And that also doesn't seem to be that well-founded. I mean, so there, there are certainly there are some technology companies like, like, like Intel and Microsoft that do sell a lot of their products abroad. But sort of the quintessential bleeding-edge, cutting-edge uh, U.S. tech company is still principal, is in the first place focused on the U.S. market. And in the second place, uh, uh, I mean, if to, to the degree that it, it, it looks for opportunities outside the U.S., it looks for opportunities in Europe and then Japan. But that, that, and that, incidentally, is a is a sign of our economic strength, not our weakness. So the, 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 there, there is this belief that we should count our economic strength in terms of our trade surplus and technolo- technologically advanced products. And look, that that trade surplus uh, uh, has declined, and it, it, it isn't that really bad? And it isn't really bad because technology is what technology really does. I mean, you. you uh, you cannot eat, drink, or, 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 or sleep on trade surpluses. It's, uh, it, it, it's ultimately goods and services that we use that are valuable. And if we take more, we take greater advantage of technology than we used to, and more than than uh, than other countries do. Why then we may have a trade deficit because some of the stuff will be produced in countries abroad. But you know, so so when uh, when Apple invents the iPod. I think this increases our trade deficit. It but does, I think you, you, because you of the way it's measured. The way it's measured, exactly. Yeah. And, and, but only a nut would say that we should therefore uh, discourage Steve Jobs from inventing things like the iPod or the iPhone. And I think it was, uh, it was a column by Hal Varian we posted and talked a little bit about before. The, the way we measure it, uh, a lot of it is not just contributing to our deficit, but contr- our trade deficit, but to our trade deficit with China. Mm-hmm. When in fact, China produces very little of the iPod. They they assemble it. It's assembled right. there, but it comes from part, the parts where it come from all over Asia right. and all over the world. But the the value added comes from the United States, mm-hmm. which is... And even if sort of the, the, uh, the, 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 the trade deficit increases, so what? Yeah, so what, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I mean uh, after a certain point, yes. I mean, a very, very large persistent trade deficit can lead to all kinds of imbalances. But just focusing on the, uh, you know, trade deficit and, and advanced technology products strikes me as, uh, as being a silly way of looking at things. Right. It's, it's back to the old mercantilist view in, 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 in the really old days. As you know, people used to sort of count national strength in terms of the specie accumulated. Yeah. Um, you know. no, but I want to go back to your original formulation. You, you know, you said... Some people say that, um, well, it's okay if China and India are growing because we'll get to sell them stuff, which is the mercantilist view and, and, and very much the mercantilist view. And it's wrong because that's not how we get rich. We don't get rich by selling stuff to people. We get rich by consuming things, and mm-hmm. that's a real measure of our prosperity and our standard of living. And your insight is that it's not that we'll sell more stuff to them. It's that as they grow and their insights uh, are available for us to enjoy. They're going to feed into that local economy that you're talking about at the at the venture level, correct? Absolutely. So, if as the world's supply of of know-how increases, this is a to everybody's benefit, and b it's probably disproportionately to our benefit because we have a greater capacity to to use uh, know-how, regardless of where it's produced, to improve our standards of living. So th- there is this uh, th- th- there is this famous article by Paul Samuelson in 2004, which uh, which sort of concludes. Uh, it's too famous, in my opinion. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> w- with this, with this really awful sentiment, and, it, and you know it's couched in 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 perhaps maybe's and so forth. But basically, he says that the reconstruction of of Europe and, and Japan was a headwind for the growth of, of, of the United States after the Second World War. Meaning it, it slowed us down. Meaning that if, 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 if Japan and, uh, and Europe had not reconstructed, we would have enjoyed even more prosperity than we did 
after the Second World War. Which, I mean, it, 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 it's an argument which can neither be proven nor disproven because we cannot run the counterfactual. We cannot keep Japan and, and Europe as bombed-out countries. But I think, I think reasonable people would disagree that the reconstruction of, of, of Japan and, uh, and Europe after the Second World War was a bad thing. And where I think my, my view may differ from the usual view, usually people would say that the reconstruction of, of, uh, of Japan and, and Europe after the Second World War was a good thing for the United States because it created export markets. I think what is, uh, that may be so, but I don't think that was a, necessarily a big deal because we're not a, a large exporting country. I mean, most large, most large economies don't export or import that much. And a, a lot of uh, U.S. companies took advantage of the reconstruction of Europe by setting up operations in Europe. So we didn't really ex- export much to Europe. But what happened was as... as as Europe and Japan, and then after that, Korea and, and Taiwan became more advanced, they too became sources of technology, and sources of technology which were of benefit not just to them, but to us as well. And uh, it, it's very, very tempting to to mix up countries and companies. So I once gave a talk about, my, uh, in October, I gave a talk about my book in, in London, and there was this really angry gentleman who said, well, don't you realize that the, that the Japanese have eaten you Americans uh, for lunch in, in the automobile industry, and uh, it's, it's, it's their, they advanced uh, in automotive technologies, and you didn't, and look where it's gotten you. So I said, wait a minute. Uh, ask yourself where the, I mean, where the, benefits of Honda's and Toyota's technological advances have been most realized. I said, in the first place, the benefits of these advances have accrued to purchasers of Japanese automobiles in the U.S. That's the largest proportion. And increasingly, uh, as the Japanese begin to produce their automobiles in the U.S., the, the productivity improvements of the workforce have also been enjoyed in the U.S. Uh, and so it's only the profits of Japanese companies vis-a-vis Ford and, uh, and Toyota that uh, are, quote-unquote, a national loss. But even there, we, anyone can invest in Ford stock and anywhere, and uh, anyone can invest in Honda or Toyota stock anywhere. So where does yeah. – so I mean, Ford and GM may have very good reason to, to bemoan the loss of their, of their technological edge, but as far as, as, as a country or as an economy is concerned – I don't see any loss. I, 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 I see gain. So I, I, I think the fact that the Japanese became terrific in consumer electronics was, again, something which, uh, which was as much to our benefit as it was to the benefit of Japan. I think the uh, – just as a footnote, it's true that a lot of Japanese cars are produced here, but unfortunately some of that is artificial perhaps. It, it was a trend that began with uh, protectionism in the Reagan administration that this idea of – voluntary constraints on um, exports from Japan into the United States. And so to comply with that, Japan started building plants here. That may be so, but I think there are good economic reasons to build them here in any case. I agree. To be close to the customer. And I just, again, I think it's important not to look at jobs per se as the gain. If if the cars were made in Japan, if it were better to make the cars in Japan, I wish they'd make them in Japan, sell them more cheaply then as a result. Because of competition, they'd be forced to. They wouldn't be the only supplier of cars, any right. one car maker. And they'd have to share the gains with the consumers. Consumers would have more resources to spend on other things, and, and we would be better off yeah. for it. Um, uh, what, t- talk about the, uh, if the insights from your study of entrepreneurship uh, for how that relates to this worry about uh, technology leadership. I mean, most of the most of the entrepreneurs that I mean, if, if I go back to my uh, 1989-1990 study, which is kind of germane here as well, some 30% of them, 40% of them, were in the personal computer industry. Uh, but what were they doing? They were actually tweaking computers to make them useful for. Uh, for end users, so they were uh, 
they were in some sense what what in the industry is known as value added resellers although they came they they, they had different names and uh, 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 and different guises uh the so, but these these you say well these are not really high tech companies even though they are in in, in the tech industry but the venture capital backed businesses that i i studied these are the quintessential uh California and uh, Massachusetts high-tech companies, even they are actually not developing high-level know-how and high-level technology. They are they're adding value to high-level know-how and technology. And, 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 and the, more, uh, the more sort of raw material there is, both in terms of, uh, of physical components and in terms of, uh, of breakthrough ideas, the more they can do. And the more they can, the more their customers will benefit, and the more the productivity of the of, of, of the economy increases. So, uh, so if 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 you actually go to Silicon Valley, you have two interesting things. One is that they seem to take very little; uh, they seem to derive very little direct benefit from the technologies actually produced by Stanford or Caltech, for that matter. They, they, they're really taking technologies from all over the world. And the second thing is that the, that apart from a few people at the top who are who are PhDs and who help translate these high-level findings into products and services, most of these guys, are, even in the in the technical workforce, are uh, are engineers. But they're, they're people with bachelor's degrees, so they, they really are doing stuff much closer to the ground, much closer closer to the customer. They're tweaking. They're adapting. They're engaging in these conversations with with their end users. They're doing very little high-end science. So that's the image that is that is projected. And why is that important? It's important because if that is where that's where the guts of our, or if that's where a large proportion of our entrepreneurial effort and and supposedly the, the uh, a crucial resource that that drives our economy forward exists. If that, that part of the economy even is principally engaged in developing this middle-level knowledge, middle-level know-how and middle-level products, then having them well-supplied with, on the one hand, uh, free or cheap raw materials and, uh, and expanding the world's supply of raw materials is a good thing. And it also means that we we need to worry about the the, the kinds of things that make that make and keep the customers venturesome, rather than thinking about whether how we're doing in in shares of patents or Nobel prizes in the sciences or scientific citations or any of that stuff. It's just such an important point. I, I um, so many people I think are focused on that latter concern of the Nobel Prizes, the patents, and the number of engineers, and they just don't see the incredible level of entrepreneurial activity. I mean, part of that's at the lower levels. I mean, we romanticize the great inventors, right? Edison, mm-hmm. Edison, even and even Steve Jobs, although it's ironic because you know Steve Jobs didn't invent the iPod or the iPhone. He's got an right. incredibly creative staff. Mm-hmm. He's, he's created the environment for them to thrive, right. but we romanticize those people when in fact the the enormous bulk of innovation that's going on is going on in the middle and lower levels of mm-hmm. making the products useful right. and and productive yeah i mean companies like uh walmart have larger it staff than sort of hundreds of these uh, high tech companies put together and they're really sort of producing ground level knowledge they're using technology to improve the efficiency of retailing, and we we never think about that as part of the uh, of, of of the whole matrix of uh, of technological advances, which ultimately are what underpin our, our prosperity. That's a great example. I think people use the term retailer as sort of the ultimate insult, right. uh, as if as if Walmart is just. Uh, it's a bunch of boxes sitting on a shelf, and they eventually trot them out, and you pay for them. There's a check, cash register, and when in fact, as you point out, it's an incredibly technologically advanced company that's used technology to keep its inventory costs down to figure out what people want. It's a very important point. And the other, the other interesting thing, which uh, while we're on the subject of Walmart, 
We say we must subsidize high-end science and technology because it produces uh, what economists call spillovers, which is public good stuff which, uh, uh, which everybody else uses. So interestingly, does Walmart. And interestingly, Walmart's uh, spillover, Walmart sitting in Bentonville, Arkansas, has produced spillovers in, the, in supply chain management, which have flown back to the West Coast. So Amazon, which is, which is sort of a, a, you know, a trendy, high-tech, uh, West Coast company, has raided Walmart and Walmart's executives to, to, to learn about how to manage a complex uh, supply chain. And, you know, there's a spillover produced by Walmart. Yeah, it's a great example. The other thing that Walmart's done is they've forced all their competitors to mm -hmm. learn how to do what they do or they're right. gone. And, of course, many of them are gone. Mm -hmm. But the remaining retailers like Target and others uh, are, of course, using all the techniques that Walmart used or they wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. And um, part of it is that we have a fairly open and mobile labor market so, yep. pe so people can go from one place to the other. So that there are, I mean, they're unavoidably spillovers at, at all levels of know-how. So you've been talking in many of these uh, topics so far about local knowledge, local knowledge of consumers, local knowledge that a single producer might have about local conditions. And it, of course, brings to mind the work of Hayek, yes, who you mentioned uh, a couple of times in your book. Talk about how Hayek has influenced your thinking about this. I mean, uh, I, I, I think again, maybe we are, we are uh, we may be getting too technical for for your, for your audience. I don't no, know, carry on. We're not. <laughs> we're not. I, 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 I think sort of Schumpeter's romanticization of the entrepreneur gets far more credit than that than it's due, and Hayek's view of how organization works, of organizations works, gets. Very short shrift, at least in in the entrepreneurial domain, and it's, it's in in Schumpeter's world. There's one heroic entrepreneur who sort of bursts upon the scene and transforms everything, and then everybody else kind of imitates on the margins, and and we're done. In the Hayekian world, this whole process of innovation innovation takes place on a hundred fronts on thousands of fronts by individual people who are who are solving their specific knowledge with their specific uh, with, 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 with their specific know-how and somehow the cumulative effect of this this highly dispersed decentralized uh, knowledge building is ultimately what what pushes the economy forward it, it, it isn't this it, it, it isn't this sort of Great break, the, the breakthrough entrepreneur in, in, in Schumpeter's world. In fact, th there are down few uh, Schumpeter and entrepreneurs that I can think of. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's not nearly as romantic, but and there's a lot more trial and error, which is another point you you mm -hmm. emphasize that a lot of these people. When you say we, they're using their local knowledge, but there's a huge amount of uncertainty. They don't know what is going to work, what isn't going to work, and yes. so the competitive process is weeding people out, but mm -hmm. not in the Schumpeterian. Uh, sort of grand idea that a, a new product comes along and everyone else is suddenly out of business and has to cope. And it, it's a much finer, nuanced set of mm -hmm. competitive uh, changes and resource allocation. It's, it's really sort of by inches. It's a ground game to use a football <laughs> analogy rather than an air game. Yeah, that's yeah. nice. Uh, well, I like Schumpeter too, but but I think you're right that the, the contribution of Schumpeter to, to entrepreneurship is um, – Maybe a little bit over dramatized. I think not. Not only it it, it 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 creates it creates the wrong image, and then then it inspires governments to think that you know all we need to do is to sort of is to bottle a few of the Schumpeterian entrepreneurs, perhaps by rather than attend to the overall environment, and so. It, by innovation is a in 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 the modern world is a very diffused, uh, almost democratic process, and if if you, if you think of it as an elitist an elitist process in the Schumpeterian sense of, of 
you know, it's, it's, it's the leadership of a few. Then you begin to get driven to ideas of what can we do for high tech or let's train more scientists and engineers when we should really be thinking about the human capital and the skills and, and a good educational system for all, not for what we do with, with a few whiz-bang scientists. It's, a, it's an interesting point. Uh, of course, you know, there's a, a certain natural uh, political prejudice in favor of the few because the few know who they are and they can. Right. there are a few heroic uh, institutions that train these heroic entrepreneurs in mm-hmm. science and technology. And, and in fact, uh, a lot of it's taking place at a much, much broader level. Right. To take a different sports analogy, it's really you need a lot of singles and don't have to worry so much about home runs. Yes. Uh, exactly. You know, move the runners along. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's a great it's a great uh, antidote to this. Um, I, I as you as you argue, a dangerous romance we have about the entrepreneurial process, mm-hmm. or, or misconception of the entrepreneurial process. It's, I mean, I think it's it's wonderful to to have to appreciate the entrepreneurial process. I think uh, it's fantastic that we no longer think that it's the accumulation of capital that. That sustains prosperity, uh, but it, it's also important to understand how this actually takes place. Uh, one last thought uh, before I want to move on to a, a different topic. You found uh, you also looked at the role of immigrants in the entrepreneurial process. What did you find? So I, I found it's it's both more and less. It's it, it, it's in the sense there's this belief that immigrants are. Uh, disproportionately uh, uh, are dispro- disproportionately large contributors to entrepreneurship, and look at uh, look at the percentage of Chinese and Indians in in uh, in, in Silicon Valley, and it's much bigger than than their share of the population and all that, and uh, as founders. And, and, and that's true, but not if you're correct for, uh, n- 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 not if you're correct for the percentage of Chinese and Indians who have PhDs. If anything, it's likely that, 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 it's, that, that it's lower. Uh, most, I think, uh, it's my, my guess is that uh, native-born PhDs are more likely to be venturesome in their career choices and in their in, in their propensity to entrepreneurship than the typical immigrant who comes in to do a PhD. There are, of course, exceptions on both sides. Uh, so, in that sense, the role of immigrants is more. Where it's uh, is less. Where it's more is that even the journeyman uh, engineer who you know who, who isn't going to win a Nobel Prize in anything, uh, who's Maybe just has a bachelor's degree and and some knowledge of a particular kind of of coding or a piece of software or something plays an invaluable role, and they 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 play this role by filling gaps in in the technological team that you need to advance the technology. So so you 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 you, you can think of immigrants as either competing with and displacing. Uh, the native born, or you can think of them as people who are who, who are who are enhancing the game, as it were. And uh, at least as things now stand, they seem to be much more uh, valuable in rounding out the team and filling out a team which a, a team which would not which would otherwise not be able to function than they are in in, in doing any displacement. But not necessarily because they have they have breakthrough ideas or, or they are sort of unnatural geniuses in in in, in math or science, but because they do sort of fairly mundane stuff. And the mundane stuff again, in my vision of of innovation, is they help the team hit singles. Um, now you also talk about Frank Knight, mm-hmm. another economist who doesn't get as much attention these days as perhaps he should, along with Hayek. Uh, what does Knight contribute to your ideas about entrepreneurship? I think Knight contributes sort of... Uh, my, my whole view of the entrepreneur has been framed by Knight's ideas. Uh, had, uh, and Which is why I have had a really hard time relating to 
many sort of modern economic studies of entrepreneurship. Because night has been sort of, uh, night is mathematically inconvenient. <laughs> I like that. It's mathematically inconvenient. You know, so explain, uh, what's the standard view of entrepreneurship that's mathematically? Well, the standard view of entrepreneurship is basically tries to reduce it to... Uh, equation. Uh, to equations. Yeah. And... And, and and the essence is and you know and you know that they're, they're, they're quite respectable and venerable people uh, who who think that we that we, we we can through the mathematics of uh, of neoclassical economics capture the essence of uh, of what entrepreneurship is about and I just don't think so I mean I I think we have to go back to Knight where he said. Entrepreneurship is uh, is taking responsibility for unmeasurable and unquantifiable risk. What did he mean? Uh, what did he mean by that? He meant that there are certain kinds of risks that can be more or less reduced to quantifiable probabilities. So, what 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 are the, what are the odds that if you if you toss a coin, it'll it'll fall heads, and if it's a fair coin, we know it's fifty percent. Uh, and you know, or if if you if you're in trust somebody's life, you ask, well, what's what's the odds that this guy's going this guy's going to die by the age of sixty? You can look up actuarial tables and and produce a probability. But there are a great many situations in life where this cannot be done, where and where this is not done. To to, to give to give you a very to me striking and lay example, but this is this, this is not my own, by the way. This is from John Kay. Uh, in a conversation that I had with him six or eight months ago. He said, think about a, a criminal trial where the standard of con- for conviction is beyond reasonable doubt. He said, do you, do you imagine that this has anything to do with probability distributions? Uh, that jury sits there and says, well, is there a 99% chance this guy was a murderer? Or is there a merely a 97% chance that this guy was a murderer? He said, this is nonsense. People don't do this. What people, what happens in in, in a in a in, 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 in a criminal trial is uh, the jury, uh, the the prosecution presents a narrative. The, uh, the the defense tries to poke holes in the narrative, and the jury has to decide whether the defense has demonstrated any weak links in the evidence and the argument produced by the. By the prosecution, if there are, if 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 there are weak links, why then there's reasonable doubt. If there are no weak links, there are there is no reasonable doubt, and that's it. It's 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 not a probabilistic game, as you like. I mean, if you're if you're handing out credit cards, maybe you can have a model which says what's the odds that so and so is going to default on its credit card. If you're starting a business, no one in his in in his his or her right mind actually makes any serious effort. To say what is the probability, you know, to, to draw a probability distribution of, of of cash flows, you ask yourself: Is there a reasonable story, given everything that I know about the world, and what I know about customers, what I know about the technology, what I uh, that this that this thing could be a success, or is there a narrative which tells me that this is bound to be a failure? And well, if you, if, if if you think that. There's a narrative that this is going to be a success, and if you can't find a narrative that that tells you this is going to be a failure, then comes the emotional part, which is, given this, are you prepared to take the sleep into the dark? And it's all these kinds of calculations and activities, uh, both both the head and the heart, but the head not in this probabilistic kind of way, and the heart in this in this really strong, powerful, central way, that are important to the. To, to the entrepreneurial process. This, I think, was beautifully described by Knight and captured by Knight in his book, and it's sort of banished from uh, modern economics. Precisely because he was talking about something that wasn't quantifiable, yeah. and what is quantifiable is what is what gets you ahead in the field today. In, in, in the game, exactly. Yeah, that's a yeah. it's an interesting thing. You know, as you were talking about the entrepreneur, of course, the investor, the venture capitalist, is making the same in unquantifiable. Exactly the same the, right. the entrepreneur is often, quote, certain that his product's a success. The right. venture cap is a little more rational, but mm-hmm. not rational in a in a engineering or mathematical way. It's a exactly. it's an intuitive thing. Yes, and I always. I mean, even engineers, by the way, are, are, are not as mathematical as people think they are. It's true. It's, it's, yeah. it's only, I mean, 
the range of human activities where probabilistic reasoning is in fact actually used or should be used is quite small. Now, we're, we're almost out of time. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, maybe a lot, we'll see how, to, how it goes, but a little bit about how your insights about night lead you to some interesting conclusions about the banking and financial system and the crisis we're in. I mean, I, I, I think sort of I, I think it was Keynes who said behind sort of uh, every every nut who hears voices in, in in the dark, there's some forgotten scribbler who's produced a theory. So every uh, every social movement, and I think the uh, the financial crisis is properly thought of as as, as a long run social movement where all of society moved. In, in, in an unfortunate direction, has uh, has an intellectual underpinning, and in, in, in this case, an, an unfortunate uh, intellectual underpinning, which was the belief that all investment risks or all lending risks can be reduced to probabilities, and and, and then there's the even further heroic assumption, which says that these probabilities are all known to quote unquote the market, whatever the heck that is. Uh, and therefore, we don't wor- need to worry about due diligence. All we need to, is, is, to, is to have clever statisticians who will who will construct the right portfolio, you know, loan portfolios or stock portfolios with the with with with, with the right parameters, and we're off to the races. And as long as this this belief existed only on the edges of the financial world, it was okay. But once it became pervasive, we effectively drove out. Uh, to a dangerous degree, uh, due diligence, the, 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 the kind of art and science of, of assessing night in uncertainty, because night in uncertainty cannot be assessed or, or managed using uh, these reductionist uh, statistical tools. You have to take a holistic view as in, as, as in, in, in a legal trial. And so the whole, the whole automation of credit scores, instead of sitting across from a, a borrower and trying to figure out whether they're a good risk or not. Right. Do you, so, you say, what does this contribute to the... Uh, so I'm going to securitize, securitize this, uh, this risk in any, in any case. So what, what is this, this loan going to contribute uh, to the riskiness of the portfolio as a whole? In terms and riskiness not defined in a uh, in a night in sense, but in this in, in this mechanized probabilistic sense. And I, you have an essay on this. We'll put a link up to it on the website. But you know, we what, what's fascinating about it to me, and I've been having similar thoughts about which direction we should go policy wise. The the direction that everyone is naturally attracted to is we need. We just need better credit scoring. We need better credit rating agencies. They didn't work this time, but but that's because they weren't regulated enough. So if we regulate them more, then the AAA really will be AAA. But your insight, which I think is the is the deeper one, is that actually you probably should go in the other direction. <laughs> I think I mean a market based largely or exclusively on rating agencies is inherently vulnerable because. It it, it 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 encourages free riding, and discourages the, the effort of sort of looking at individual securities. And if everyone free rides, then this creates enormous opportunities for for scams and bad investments. But as you point out, this trend of diversification. Well, I think that the other deep insight is this point that uh, that the. Um, the mathematical properties of diversification falsely lead you away from due diligence, from the careful examination mm-hmm. of of real risk, which right. is not always quantifiable. Mm-hmm. And that it, this is a very old problem. This is not a problem of the last five years. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this has been. I mean, as the, the the old view has been progressively flushed out. It, I mean, it's become more and more acute. I. I was told of this recently Hatch PhD now works for for a European Central Bank. And he said he'd looked at the old finance textbooks and he said they were full of this prudent man rubbish. As if, you know, and this prudent man rubbish had obviously and properly been superseded by the ca- uh, capital asset pricing model. Science. Where you don't, 
where you don't worry about uh, about idiosyncratic risk because of course you can get rid of these yeah. idiosyncratic risks. There's no there's, there's no need for anybody to be a prudent man. Uh, yeah, science improves our lives, right? It's right. just it's the same way you know you have uh, say an automatic transmission instead of actually having to shift the car. It just it's a way that we've innovated and made things better. But of course it doesn't it really doesn't do exactly what it says. I mean, there are some innovations. I mean, not all innovations are good. So, I, you know, so, so, so that uh, improving the efficiency of crack manufacturing is probably not, <laughs> a, you know, a, a socially valuable uh, innovation. And you know, so, 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 so innovation sort of is a neutral process. It, it so happens that under the right set of rules and under the right set of incentives, which we have managed to construct in this society, it has been overwhelmingly a force for the good. Uh, but in some cases, it, it, it has led to dangerous consequences, and one of the places where it has led to dangerous consequences was uh, is, 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 is in the financial sector. So your preference is for banks to return to their uh, very strange identity of borrowing and lending. Yes, and, and, and not only that, anyone taking deposits from the public because if 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 you if you force banks to do that and didn't impose a similar restriction on money market funds then all the money you know then the money all the money would go to money market funds and people would put their money in money market funds saying hey we avoid the cost of uh of paying for a loan officer this due diligence process we get the extra 25 basis points and if anything ever actually goes wrong the government will step in and make us whole yeah i i'm uh i'm actually i think there's Somebody asked me the other day whether uh, what was the future of securitization, and I I said I suspect uh, it's a little bit out of fashion right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government seems obsessed with making sure that we bring it back, right. but naturally, I think if anything, we would go to the other extreme mm-hmm. and stay away from it like a poison. Right. And so uh, it's a in very interesting time thinking about what natural uh, forces would emerge that would. If anything, be too cautious rather than too risk taking. Well, at least in the short run, next ten, twenty years, thirty years from now, we'll probably be making the same mistakes if we're not careful. Right. I, 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 I mean, I, I think that there are segments of the financial markets where risk taking is appropriate, uh, and there are segments of the of, of the financial markets markets where it's not. And where it's appropriate is you knowingly say, "I'm going to invest in this new venture." And I understand that it could go bust, and I'm doing it because I expect a 30% annualized rate of return. Where it's inappropriate is where you have the treasurer of, uh, of, of some university or, or state government or, or pension fund who gets told, oh, you'll get six extra basis points for investing in this auction rate preferred security, where you don't really understand what it is. The people who con- constructed it don't really understand what it is. And ultimately, nobody's done any due diligence on on the individual on the individual securities where uh, uh, which went into this uh, into 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 this auction rate preferred. So, if if you were really harsh about it and said, okay, if you if you are if if you are nuts to do this for ten basis points, then good luck to you. We're not going to make you whole. Then that would be okay. But we don't do that either. Yeah, that's the big problem. That it's the too big to fail or too. Politically important to fail, or you know, we'll find out. History will make some kind of judgment on it. But uh, I like to let people just take their chances. But I, it is politically hard to restrain I the mean, government. It, it, it's it's kind of hard to say that the average mo who put his three hundred dollars of of savings into something which is which is advertised as a non risky investment that it's it's, it's sort of on call money. It's hard to believe how, in a democracy, we could actually let that person go under. You know, and and if 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 we if we take that as being a fact of life, then then we say okay, and anyone who takes de- deposits from the public, uh, and deposits, not I mean, the, the, the 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 other interesting contrast to me is how we were mature enough to let the internet bubble burst, and let a half a trillion dollars of, of wealth be lost. Uh, and we were not with, uh, uh, 
for that, I think people sort of figured out. You 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 pay. I mean, you inv- invested in these mad internet stocks. Nobody's going to nobody's going to sort of make you whole. Yeah. Whereas, I think people have some kind of belief that if if, if I give money to a money market fund, and it, and especially if you have an SEC, so if we have supposedly uh, organizations that are looking after the little guy, then the little guy has some reason to believe that they will look after him and never mind the fine print. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you live in a paternalistic world. Nobody grows up. But right. it is an interesting, it is a fascinating political economy problem mm-hmm. that uh, if you're going to have somebody holding your hand when you cross the street, you're not going to look both ways. It's just yeah. the way it is. Mm-hmm. So I'd like just to see us push toward a world with less hand-holding, but it may not be realistic. I mean, so... so, so but I mean, even if you believe in a handholding society, you you you, you can. You, there only I mean, a parent has only two hands to, to hold, <laughs> you know. And so then, at least let's sort of make sure that the that the handholding is uh, you know is within the capacity of the parent. Yeah, that's right. Well, my guest today has been Hamar Day of Columbia University. He's author of the Venturesome Economy. Thank you for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.